0: Welcome to another special topic episode of the Olefins Weekly Wrap-Up, a podcast by IHS Market. Today is Wednesday, May 19th. I'm Aaron Roberts. We're joined by Bill Hyde, Executive Director of Olefins and Elastomers, to talk about what's been happening in the C4's market and where it's headed. Welcome to the podcast, Bill.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been listening with interest to your podcast's uh, over the months, and I'm glad you finally invited me. We're very appreciative to have you on this podcast,
2: Bill. This is, this is an honor and a treat, and uh, I'm sure our audience will, uh, will get a lot of value from your insight, especially on the you, yeah. C4s
1: end. I hope you still feel that way when we're done. Oh, yeah, <laughs> totally. We're good.
0: <laughs> yeah. So before we get started with things, Bill, can you share a little bit about your background and what you do for IHS Market?
1: Yeah, so uh, so my background, I'm a uh, I'm a chemical engineer with an MBA. Uh, I've been working in the petrochemical space, actually in the uh, in the olefins markets uh, since 1990. Um, I've I spent the first ten years or so of my career working for a company called Union Carbide that was acquired by Dow in 2000. I then moved uh, to work for a couple of years for uh, Texas Petrochemical, which is now the TPC Group, which is a uh, a major uh, provider of extraction, of C4 extraction services here in the Houston area. Uh, and then I joined CMAI uh, as, a, uh, as a market consultant in 2002. And so I've been consulting in the C4 olefin space since 2002, through CMAI, all the way up now to IHS and IHS Market. Um, so that's, uh, that's my background.
2: Yeah, no, it's great, Bill. When you mentioned Union Carbide, it reminded me when I was with Exxon and I spent some time with uh, the Univation joint yep. venture, which was between Exxon and Union Carbide. And then uh, once Dow acquired them, I think there was kind of a love-hate relationship between Dow and Exxon at the time. Uh, but yeah, licensing, the licensing business was yep. uh, was really fun.
1: Yeah, yeah. Union Carbide was one of those, um, you know, big classic brands, you know, one of one of the sort of founding pillars of the petrochemical uh, of the petrochemical markets. In fact, uh, you know, the, their story was that the petrochemical industry really started uh, in the early part of the 1900s in the Kanawha Valley, West Virginia, uh, in the the Union Carbide sites, and it grew from there.
0: You clearly have a lot of experience, and we're very excited to get into things. The first question I want to ask you, Bill, it's about demand. What are the drivers, and how is that affecting the outlook for C4s?
1: Yeah, so when we think about C4s, uh, the uh, the largest global derivatives are the commodity, the butadiene-based commodity synthetic rubber. So it's uh, styrene butadiene rubber, SBR, and polybutadiene rubber, uh, so PBR. Uh, and uh, and those give or take 65-70% of those markets uh, end up in tires. And for sBr another fifteen percent or so ends up in the automotive sector as some sort of auto part belts, hoses, gaskets, engine mounts, uh, you know all all of those all of those sorts of things uh, so our our markets are really closely tied to the mobility trends now there are there are clearly other derivatives, right a b s um, which is more more affected by Appliance demands, um, but that's from a butadiene perspective. That's uh, a little more than 10% globally, and it's focused uh, primarily in Asia. Not exclusively, but primarily in Asia. And uh, we also look at like SB latex, so styrene butadiene latex. The the carbox their carboxylated grades uh, are primarily consumed in uh, paper coating and carpet backing adhesives so uh so we're not we're not a hundred percent mobility but but oh and i uh, I should also mention uh the nylon six six market which uh which is um you know it's it's less than ten percent of global butadine demand, but it's concentrated in the u s and europe, so it it actually has a somewhat disparate uh impact. Uh, a much larger impact on the uh, on the market dynamics than its uh, than its market share might uh, imply. Uh, so those those are kind of the the big drivers. But but what really moves it is mobility, and and we've had just a disastrous kind of year and a half in the mobility space. I, I know you guys in the Light olefin side, you know you're you're talking about growth rates reduced from uh from what your expectation was uh in the C4 markets we actually had growth rates um not reduced uh not reduced from a, a not reduced but still positive but we actually had significant uh demand destruction last year uh and um and so as as we look at this year we clearly expect a bounce but we're not and and we're seeing a bounce, but the fundamentals don't support returning all the way back to 2019 levels. Uh, you know, and so so well, as an example, uh, you know the uh, the crude oil markets, we're expecting uh, at least the the latest IHS market outlook that I've seen uh, is somewhere in um, you know, five million barrels a day. Of oil demand increase as we move through the second and third quarters this year, but we're still going to be short of where we were in 2019 in terms of overall oil demand, uh, and and on the increment, that's gasoline, which means that people are just driving less. So if you're driving less, you're wearing you're you're putting less wear and tear on your tires, uh, and so uh, so we don't expect the replacement tire market to grow to the 2019 level uh, this year and when we think about the original equipment markets uh, you know automotive production was down something like 16 percent year on year uh, last year it's going to bounce back this year but we're not going to be back to 2019 levels uh, globally at least for another couple of years so yeah, yeah, that's
2: interesting, Bill. I mean, cuz if I could interject a little sure. bit here, what could can you tell our listeners what what's the split in the tire market between replacement and OEM? Cuz I know it's different depending on the region, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it depends it depends where you are. But uh in in the developed world, so markets where the vehicle fleet really isn't growing that fast the replacement tire market is roughly 75% uh, of the overall tire market. Uh, in the developing world, where you have the fleet growing a little faster, it, it's more of a 50-50 split. So, you know, overall, globally, it's probably 65, you know, 35, something something in that range. Uh, so really the miles driven trends uh, are are more important uh, than the OE, although they're they're both significant. The the other thing to think about uh, when you're when you're thinking about the replacement market is that that people in general, uh, they they can stretch out the life of their tire if they live, if you know, if they have sort of uncertain economic times. I can I can remember uh, during the last recession, I was talking with uh, with some of the guys that are running tire tire shops and and they said, you know, the the quality. Of the tires that they were pulling off people's cars, were terrifying. Uh, you know, um, in when um, when you're thinking about what's a reasonable tread depth um, it, here in the U.S., uh, you can use uh, the your penny as a um, as a depth gauge, uh, and so you put it in with you know Lincoln's head in, and if you can see all of Lincoln's head. Then it's time to replace your tires. So I think it's a sixteenth of an inch that uh, difference between the the edge of the penny and the top of Lincoln's head. And what happens during recessions is uh, people change that Lincoln's head standard to a I don't see any tire cord standard on on when or you know when they're going to replace their tires. So they 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 can extend the life of the tires somewhat. Uh, and you know nobody. Uh, well, almost nobody, you know, there are vehicle, you know, sort of enthusiasts and tuners out there that uh, that might replace their tires because they want something that looks different. But the vast majority of the market, you don't, nobody wants to go out and buy new tires, so you it's something that you do because you're forced into it. Uh, and in, in difficult economic times, you sort of put it off longer, and that now. That demand does come back, and that's that's part of what we're seeing this year. Um, we I think we are seeing some of the of the replacement tires uh, that that they didn't buy last year that they are buying this year. But the the bigger factor right right now, the butadine markets, uh, especially in the U.S., but also to an extent in Europe, are really quite tight, and the the bigger reason for that is inventory restocking. So last last year we shut down tire production for a month and a half or more in various plants. Uh, So there's a whole lot of cash management, inventory uh, decisions that were made. And as as the markets sort of have returned to something that's uh, approaching normal, clearly we're not back to normal yet, but we're a lot closer than we were. They've started trying to restock inventory, and that's been just a real challenge. Uh, so demand for butadiene from rubber producers has been really, really quite strong, even though if we look at the fundamentals, uh, we would say that we, stood, we should still be you know, relatively weak and certainly lower than we were in, in 2019 when there wasn't really a shortage of synthetic rubber. So for consumers, I mean, clearly the weather
2: has impacted uh, a lot of production and the like. But what I guess I would ask is, how has the last eight months of weather events, hurricanes in the Gulf and freeze events, how has that affected uh, downstream inventories?
1: Yeah, so it's been a disaster, right? I mean, the, the one of the key things for us to remember here is the. The butadiene production. There's one plant in North America that's not on the Gulf Coast. Uh, that's up in in Canada, but all the rest of it is on the Gulf Coast. There's two units in Louisiana, and uh, and all the rest of it is in Texas. Uh, so that's that's one thing to to keep in mind. The synthetic rubber producers, the largest synthetic rubber producers, are also in Texas and Louisiana, uh, so they're exposed to the hurricane impact there's There's a little bit of synthetic rubber production that's located away from the Gulf Coast, uh, but it's it's relatively specialized and relatively small the bigger the bigger synthetic rubber producers are are located on the Gulf Coast. However, the tire plants are essentially all located inland, so they were unaffected by the hurricanes, and especially the winter storm uh, that happened in February. Uh, and so they've wanted to to build inventory. They've wanted to pull harder, and they've simply been un- unable to. So think about it. I mean, we had two hurricanes last year, September and October. Then uh, what was not weather-related in November, every, every one of the U.S. butadine producers had some kind of Operating issue, uh, and so uh, so we had supply constraints then, um, and then of course the the winter storm. So that happened, um, you know, right around Valentine's Day, mid mid uh, February, and butadiene capacity wasn't all completely running again <clears throat> until early April. So <clears throat> so we had six weeks of constrained issues, uh, supply constraints. Uh, and so any progress that was made in restocking the va- the value chain, the inventories between, say, December and January, surely was uh, was lost during the uh, during the February to April kind of time frame. Now, we we don't have good data. You know, I can't see it. Uh, but uh, and that's that's a real um it's a real challenge for us because since we can't see the inventory levels, we can't really get a feel for how long this is going to continue. But what we can see is consumers butadiene consumers uh, continuing to nominate their contract maximum volumes, uh, and uh, and we expect that this is probably going to carry on for the next several months. Uh, you know, I've 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 talked with some of the smaller butadine consumers, and these these guys are not in the in the mobility space. Um, but i I heard from one of them that if they if their sales dropped to zero, it would still take them more than a month to get their inventories back to where their target levels were. Now, I, I hope that's an extreme example, but it is a real example. Uh, and so it, it that's the kind of thing we're looking at. Uh, as, you know, and so you say, well, what's the big disconnect between what the fundamentals say demand should be, and what we're really seeing in the market, and that's a big piece of it. Um, another big piece of it is the behavior of uh, of distributors. So, <clears throat> so when you're um, when you're a distributor and you're looking at a uh, at a tight market, uh, and you've got your demand forecast, what do you do? Well, you you place larger orders than uh, than you really need, hoping that you'll get something closer to what you really need. And so that then sends a stronger signal up the supply chain than what the what the market really is. And eventually, when things start to turn around and the distributors actually get what they're looking for, then they cut the, they cut those orders fairly dramatically and all and all of a sudden you see this massive uh, re um, sort of reset of what the, uh, of what the market is. And that's, that's something that I know some of the tire producers are talking about. They're expecting to see it, but just like us, they don't have any real idea when that's likely to happen. So it's a, it's a real sort of uncertain time in the market right now. But what, what we know for sure is in May, they're, there were um, allocations and sales controls of butadiene. Uh, and it sounds
2: vaguely familiar because we're yeah. hearing <laughs> the light yeah. elephant side. We're seeing the same thing, right? Yeah, uh, well, at least I on mean, the derivative side. On the derivative side, right?
1: Yeah, and and part of it is because uh, you know when you, there's a big difference between restarting capacity and getting back to full rates. You know, so when you th- when you think about your ethylene crackers, right? You've got a certain number of cracking furnaces in it. You've got a minimum turn down, uh, and then you've got a, uh, you know, you've got a level that um, uh, that's normal, right? Your your normal operating rate. And so what happens is, you know, after after your outage, especially after an unplanned outage, which which we had with the winter storm, you get terrible damage. To the cracking furnaces, and and you're able to restart your unit when you get back to your minimum turn down, mm-hmm. but you don't really get back to full rates for a while after that, as you work your way through getting your furnaces back up and running, and and I'm sure that's the piece of what we're seeing uh, in the in the olefins operating rates right now, and. And obviously BD, uh, the crude C4 supply is completely connected to trends in the light olefin space. So right. yeah, we got all of the extraction capacity up and running in the U S uh, we, you know, we did have an unplanned, uh, outage in Canada here in May, uh, because, uh, the Nova cracker went down, which cut the feedstock supply off to the Arlang unit up there.
2: Yep.
1: That's right. Um, but, uh, but. All of the extraction capacity in the U.S. is available, but there's only so much crude C4 that's being produced, and that's that's increasing, and and it's going to increase over time. You know, we think the uh, at least my understanding from, you know, talking to the market and from reading what you guys are writing on the light olefin side, and and listening to this podcast, is that operating rates and and certainly uh, you know, unit availability is going to improve fairly dramatically. We're, we're a lot better in May than we were in April. We're going to be a lot better in June, uh, than we are now in May. So the trend is in the direction of goodness, but it's, it's just taken some time, uh, to work your way back up. Uh, and, uh, and so the synthetic rubber guys are, are in a, well, all of the butadiene consumers are in kind of a tough spot right now as they, uh, is they kind of wait for production to increase? We've bought every pound of butadiene that was uncommitted in Europe, and we're bringing it here. Uh, and even here this week, we bought a uh, there. There was a an import from Korea that was arranged, supposed to load early June. Uh, so, so the U.S. Uh, the U.S. butadiene consumers are doing what they can they're, they're doing what they can to increase, uh, increase their availability, but there's only so much they can do. Uh, and, and that's, so that's on the supply side. That's just kind of where we are. We're stuck with it.
2: So you talked, uh, you talked a lot about, or a little bit about imports. Um, Bill, I know that, on the propylene side, on the polypropylene side, that's something that's really been an impediment to getting prices to normalize and keeping them in check. Uh, and it's directly attributed to the container markets. So uh, I was curious to know, are you seeing some of those same effects uh, in the container markets uh, on the market here in in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, 100%, 100%. Um, the... Uh so the the threat from the synthetic rubber producers to their suppliers when uh, in a in a time of rising prices has historically always been if you raise my price too much uh, either i or my consumers will find material in europe or asia that they can bring into the us at a lower delivered cost than what i can make it here locally and I'll, you know, and so I'll lose sales. My butadiene demand will then go down and you'll have to choke on some of that crude C4 that you're, uh, that's being produced that, you know, you're basically on the hook to consume everything, uh, that is coming out of the, uh, out of the crackers. And so that's one of the ways that the market balances, uh, you know, we we're, we're the U.S is a net importer essentially of everything along the C4 value chain. We, uh, we are, we're net importers of crude C4, although these days, almost all of that comes from Canada and Mexico. Uh, we have historically brought material in from West Europe, but uh, we don't do that so much anymore. Uh, but we're net butadiene importers, we're net synthetic rubber importers, we're net tire importers. Uh, and so, so all along the value chain, and then another one of the interesting dynamics of our particular market is there's not a whole lot of integration up and down the chain. So as an example, not every crude C4, some crude C4 producers are downstream integrated into butadiene, but not all of them. Um, and there's essentially no butadiene producer that's downstream integrated into any of the derivatives, uh, at least none of the big ones. Uh, and when you look at the rubber producers, some rubber producers make tires, but there's a, there's a vibrant merchant market of synthetic rubber producers that don't make tires. Uh, and there's a lot of tire producers that are not upstream integrated into rubber. So everybody is optimizing their piece of the value chain uh, and there's not really a dominant interest that the, that looks at it and says, well, I'm going to optimize the overall value chain that that's just the way our, our market's set up And so so if you're a tire producer that is not upstream integrated into rubber, you really don't care you know if you have you have qualified suppliers both domestic and imports and the only thing you care about is how can I get the lowest, delivered costs to my tire plants. Well, the first thing you care about is I got to make sure I, you know, I get it, I get as much supply as I can. And then how can I do that at the lowest cost? And that, and that's, uh, that threat today is hollow because of the containerized freight issues, um, with, uh, with the inability to move material here quickly and at a reasonable cost. The uh, the synthetic rubber producers and the butadiene producers, frankly, aren't concerned when their customers come to them and say, if you raise the price, you know, I'll I'll lose market share to imports because that's just simply not going to happen now. And and for the next several months, Uh, you know, this this is something that has been with us for a while and it doesn't look like it's going away in the next three or four months yeah, quasi-protective markets, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's not we're not we're not looking at tariffs, but uh, it's the same impact. I mean, we tariffs are an important part of the synthetic rubber balance these days, but uh, um, but that's not what we're dealing with now. What we're dealing with now is just the inability to get containers um, empty containers where they're needed. the you know, the the ports are clogged we had the uh, Suez Canal issue i mean they just contained the containerized market is just a mess and uh, and that's that has been a uh, a significant market rebalancing pathway uh, down the C4 value chain that's just simply not available to us
0: focusing a little bit more on prices we're seeing the price spread between north america and the rest of the world why does it continue to stay open
1: yeah. Yeah. So, so right now the, uh, the price spread, the but so we're talking about the contract butodyne price. So the U S contract price difference to the European contract price or the Asia spot price. Um, and the, the Asia spot price that we use as kind of our main marker is the FOB South Korea price. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's a couple others that are out there, but they're all trending in the same direction. And, and, and the short answer, right now is butadiene market in the US is tight there's limited options to bring material in as butadiene or as a butadiene derivative uh, and so the butadiene consumers are forced to pay whatever whatever it takes and so the butadiene producers uh, are actually getting a bit of a windfall right now and it's sustainable for the for the very reason uh, that we were just talking about which is mm. the rebalancing the primary rebalancing avenue is just not available uh right now and and won't be for the next several months so so our our forecast and this this was an adjustment we made just a uh just a few weeks ago um our our forecast now calls for a really widespread between the U S and the rest of the world, uh, at least until September, maybe, you know, it could extend into the fourth quarter. And it's just because there's no real alternative down the chain. Uh, and so right now the producers have all the leverage, uh, that'll change, but it won't change until these, these freight issues. Uh, and, and frankly, uh, once the inventory levels get back to whatever the targets are gonna be, uh we we'll see we'll see the demand drop back to something that's more indicative of what the of what the fundamentals are, which is, you know, better than last year, but not 2019 kind of levels. So we get we get the uh when we get the inventory rebalanced and we get the freight issues worked out, then that spread should collapse back down to where to where it's been here more recently. Um, so right now, um, it's, uh, it's about $250 a ton, give or take between the U S and West Europe. Um, it, it mm-hmm. should probably be, uh, at equilibrium, it should probably be something closer to $50 a ton. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, so Bill, th- this is interesting. We we've talked a lot about synthetic rubber, but what role does natural rubber ha- have to play in this whole thing? Cuz I mean, I I think uh personally I can tell you that I forget sometimes that there is there is a natural rubber product out there, but what r- what role does it play in try to balance out this uh this strange market?
1: Yeah, so So the natural rubber markets and the synthetic rubber markets, uh, interestingly enough, uh, at least to me, um, the natural rubber market is actually a little larger than the synthetic rubber market. Um, Mm. Now we, you don't see it as much um, because the largest demand sector for natural rubber is actually over the road truck tires. So semi semi truck tires. Um, And, and those, you know, demand for that is not as tied to, uh, some of these other trends as what we've seen. Uh, the, you know, the, the natural rubber markets are really fascinating. Uh, you know, most of the world's natural rubber is produced in Southeast Asia. Um, essentially all of it is, uh, is basically produced as small farmers, well, it's not all small farmers, but, but in Southeast Asia, more than 80% of it is from small farmers and they'll go out every day, uh, with a knife and, uh, and they call it tapping, but basically they're carving a, a groove down the tree and capturing sap, you know, so think the, uh, you know, kind of the maple syrup in new England kind of, uh, uh, harvesting method, except, except in this case, they're doing it year round. And they get about a cup of, of sap per tree per day. Uh, and then you sort of pull all that together into processing plants and, you know, and the volume increases. But but the world's natural rubber supply is really tied to small kind of almost subsistence level farmers in Southeast Asia, you know, getting uh, getting that one cup of latex per tree per day, and then bringing it through. And so what what we saw last year with the COVID restrictions and whatnot, their labor availability was down. So natural rubber production was was actually down, um, but it didn't matter so much because demand was down in most of the world. Now the Chinese took advantage of that uh, and they actually built natural rubber inventory last year. But in the rest of the world, they had the same inventory management uh, strategies they did for synthetic rubber, which was you know lower it as much as possible. We've got to maintain our cash reserves. Well, now this year, things have started to go back the other way. Um, and natural rubber also ships containerized. and And so we haven't been able to get natural rubber from where it's produced to where it's needed. and what what we've seen, is the spread the price spread between the natural rubber markers in southeast asia and the natural rubber markers in west europe and north america widened dramatically so that that tells us that what we're facing on the natural rubber side at least right now is a logistics constraint not a supply demand constraint mm-hmm. now that's that's so, so i think that that works its way through on kind of the same timing as the um as the synthetic rubber issues and the tire issues, which is over the next i don't know four months, five months, six months, as the containerized freight uh, issues resolve themselves, we'll start to see that uh, that that natural rubber supply picture uh you know work its way through so in the in the near term, that's where we're gonna be yeah. Uh, you know, we could, we could talk a lot about the five-year kind of outlook on natural rubber. And, and should we be concerned in that five to 10 year time frame about, is there enough natural rubber production and are we planting enough trees and, and all that kind of stuff. But for now, it's really, uh, in our view, a, uh, a supply chain, uh, you know, logistics constraint and not an actual material availability constraint.
0: Our conversation with Bill didn't end there. Tune in next week to hear the rest. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a like or leave a review if you enjoy it. Check out ihsmarket.com chemical for more information on subscribing to our services. And if you have questions or want us to cover something more specific, you can send an email to me at aaron.roberts@ihsmarket.com. at ihsmarket.com. Until next time.